Chinch. Hello and welcome to Set Piece Menu. This is the podcast where four friends talk football over foods. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth of this parish, Rory Smith of this parish, and Andy Hinchcliffe of a much posher parish. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> We will be here, Andy, Stephen and myself, for the full podcast. Um, But Rory is uh, here just for the beginning because, uh, as you know, we have been uh, on a break. Not like Ross and Rachel in Friends, very different to that. Uh, We have been on a break and and the reason, as we mentioned on Twitter, was for personal reasons. And Rory, you wanted to uh, just take an opportunity to explain uh, what's been going on, how much you would like people of the set-piece menu world to know and what they might be able to do in response to it. Yeah. And, and furthermore, um, to explain a little bit why you won't be here for the next couple of weeks potentially as well. well. I'm really conscious that I am basically setting you three up for a massive fall because I'm, I'm going to say this, then go, and you're going to have to have like a light-hearted podcast. And people who, if you don't hit the right tone of light-heartedness, people are going to be disappointed. So good luck. Uh, <laughs> for that, the, thank you. Yeah. Chinch has dealt with worse passes in his That's life, true. So yeah. He's made worse passes. I, I'm not sure. I've made worse passes. I'm not sure I've dealt with them, though. Um, so the reason, the reason that I'm here, I'm a great believer in the Neil Atkinson doctrine of secrets and content, where you, you have certain aspects of your life that are for yourself and certain aspects of your life that you are willing to, to leverage. So, for example, you will not find a photo of my son, Ed, on social media. That, that's, he's secrets. He's not content. And I normally don't like um, bleeding between the two, but I, I noticed the other day the, the tweet that, we, that you put out uh, saying we were absent for personal reasons. And I noticed the response, which was really kind of heartwarming, because three weeks ago, my brother died. And the, the last three weeks, we've sort of spent try, trying to come to terms with that. And we've had lots of support from friends and family and uh, people that I don't know that well and people that my parents know and people that my parents have forgotten and we've had lots of cards and lots of messages and it's all really helped with what has been a massive shock and uh, as you can probably tell from my voice because I was, I was, we were talking two minutes ago and I was absolutely fine uh, utterly devastating so I, I was really touched to read those the responses to the tweet and it made me realise that we do have kind of a set piece menu community and it means a lot to me and the fact that people are genuinely concerned about these four slightly odd people that they've never met <laughs> and their general well-being um, is, is really touching and really really helpful at what is, without sounding horribly cliched, like a really genuinely dark time. So I don't yet, yet feel ready to take the piss out of Chinch. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not, I don't think it would be fair on you three to have me dragging you down during the podcast. But I wanted to come and say thank you for those messages. I, I wanted to kind of explain... And I also wanted to, uh, to ask the said set, set-piece menu community to put their money where their mouth is. <laughs> uh, my brother was 31, and he lived in Portugal. Uh, we didn't know he was ill. Uh, four days before he died, we thought he had an inner ear infection, and it turned out he had a brain tumour, uh, which he seemed to be kind of... We, we were confident he would fight. He was young and fit and healthy and stubborn as a mule, uh, but it got him pretty quickly. But he was, um, he was an occasional listener to the podcast. I think a lot of, a lot of his friends listen uh, in, in Portugal. And I, how often he listened, I'm not sure. Does he would, I think he listened to the one that we put out before he saw me. So that he could say, oh, I was listening to the podcast the other day. Very good. <laughs> I don't think he actually listened every week. He, that wouldn't be Rob's style. Um, but he, was, he, 
he was really concerned about the environment. He was incredibly eco-friendly, incredibly conscious of kind of climate change and the effect we're having on our world. And it's become in the last few weeks quite important to me uh, an initiative that his his partner Rachel has launched to try and raise money for the Woodland Trust so that we can um, we can dedicate an area of woodland in his name and in his honour. I think that seems like an appropriate way to to honour him. So basically, uh, we we tend not to ask our listeners for anything. Um, we've recently been asking you to come to a live show, which will still go ahead. I might break down in tears in the middle of it, but <laughs> consider that a bonus. Um, and uh, I'm now asking if people do feel so moved that, that they might consider donating something. Just n- doesn't have to be very much. Every little helps. Just will slow down for a supermarket. <laughs> uh, the, the it, would, it would be hugely appreciated. Uh, and because he was, he, he was in some way part of that community as well, obviously, as as well as being my best mate so uh, it would be massively appreciated um, so people can go to justgiving.com uh, and then do a forward slash and then it's robert dash a dash j dash smith it was a show off and had too many middle names <laughs> we've, all, we've all got one Robbie felt that he deserved two in that case he deserves the extra dashes he that really comes does, yeah. in between yeah, yeah. so justgiving.com forward slash robert dash a dash j dash Smith, uh, set up by Rachel, Robert's partner. Um, I know that you want to try and get an acre's worth at the very least yeah. of woodland, uh, which will be essentially siphoned off in Robert's memory. Yeah. Um, and to do that, please, if you, uh, as Rory says, are so moved to donate as little or as much as you feel would be fitting uh, in tribute to Robert. So justgiving.com forward slash Robert dash A dash J dash Smith, set up by uh, Robert's partner, Rachel. And from the three of us, I'm sure that you guys will have a word to say as well. Uh, Rory, we uh, we love you. We're thinking of you, your family, um, and and also the and it's something that's struck all of us, not just the three of us sitting around here, but also those who know and love you, particularly that we the the, the friends that we have in common. Your incredible ability, your eloquence, your fortitude, your ability to have the same traits as your parents and be very stoic in this situation. Uh, is as moving to us as you've been moved by everything that you've heard from the Seppi's many family. So thank you. We we think of you onwards. That's very kind of you. And I, yeah, that means a lot. And as I said, I, I, I thought, if I tell you, the worst thing, not the worst thing, one of the things you, that I don't like doing generally sending out group texts, but there comes a point where you've, you're writing, my brother has died, and you don't want to type it again. Mm. So you, you end up sending big group texts and the one that I sent I sent one out in response to a lot of the messages we got I'm quite a cynical person and I would have thought that in a situation like this that people sending you thoughts and prayers would be incredibly kind of at at best you just sort of shrug it off and think no no thanks don't need that doesn't make any difference but it really does I can't begin to tell you how much difference it makes just to get a text from somebody or just to get a, a card I've had letters from people I worked with and People who I wouldn't necessarily consider myself being close to, but you know, they've taken time to write a letter, and I, I think my parents, particularly, and me and my sister and Rachel, Rob's Rob's girlfriend, it, it's nice to have a moment where you think that people are nice, and not to have to think just for a second about the circumstances that brought about that niceness, and that that gives you incredible, just gives you a little lift, and it doesn't last very long, and you remember exactly why they're being nice, uh, but. It does. It, may, it means a huge amount, and that's that's why the response is. This isn't kind of. I hate asking people for money. Like Rob, I'm from Yorkshire. It's a taboo subject, but the 
yeah, the responses to the tweet really, really genuinely moved me. The people didn't know what was, what was up. You say personal reasons, people think, oh, God, something's happened. Uh, and the fact that people cared mm. is, is really kind of nice. So thank you to the people who responded to that tweet, or even the people you know, who thought, mm, I hope they're all all right. That's, that means a lot. It's nice to know that people are thinking of you. I share what Hugh said a moment ago. My admiration for you has always been incredibly strong, Rory, and it is even more so bearing in mind the way you've handled the last three weeks or so. And if you admire the way that Rory writes and speaks about football, then to to hear the way that you have communicated about Robbie over the course of the last couple of weeks is is even more remarkable. And, and I think the way that you have described what happened and the way you have shared the emotions that you've been through are, are, are truly extraordinary. And, and as I say, my, my admiration for you has grown even more so over the course of the last couple of weeks. That's very nice, but I, t- I can feel that the, the re- our rating on iTunes is going to be dropping <laughs> like a stone. Well, I, I, you this know, we, is, is that because, is that because Chinch is, is that just Because I'm to about to say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we all sit around tables and we eat and we all feel football is very important. And we all like to have a bit of fun and, and laugh and joke and feel this is this is really important. This is what needs to be done. But then real life does mm. come crashing in. And then you then appreciate the people around you and the people do genuinely care about you. We've all we've all lost people. It's absolutely horrendous to go through it. But I remember saying to Steve, when I read that text that you said about what happened to Robbie, I, I said to you, Steve, now that is the most extraordinary piece of writing considering the circumstances that I have ever read. And I've read a lot of Reacher. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> I can lighten the mood. I, I have to lighten the mood. It was. No, I genuinely, I genuinely mean that. He, he's, just I, given, <laughs> he's just given us an out for our left turn of the lights when you go, Roy. He's just given us a little crumb that we can now grow a tree from. <laughs> no, honestly, it was. Uh, I get, uh, yeah, I do t- try to lighten the mood when maybe I shouldn't do. But no, it was. It, it was. And I remember I read it, I remember Nikki read it, Carly read it, and, you know, see, we, we've never met Robbie, but, but the way that, that you talked about him and how you conveyed what had happened and how you felt was, it was, it was truly, truly extraordinary. And we, you, you know I love you dearly, we all love you dearly, everybody across the board, the work that you do, the person that you are, you are extraordinary, and hopefully in time things will get easier for you, but you absolutely should feel how you feel. It shows the relationship you had. He was your best friend. Yeah. That's what you told us. So that... You lose your best friend, it is absolutely horrendous. But if we in any way, as your friends and your family around you, can comfort you and, and help you through these really kind of the, 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 the dark weeks, you, we, you will get through. And we will be here for you when that happens as well. So we're here now, and we will always be here in the future for you. He's a nice man, isn't he, really? Sometimes. Since. Yeah, he's got, you know, he's got his good points. <laughs> uh, Rory, thank you for spending the time with us this week. No, it, no, no, no. It's, it's, really, it's really nice to see thank you all. You. And uh, you've, you've obviously been in the sunshine, Hugh, which is fine. Well, I think you, you're always tried. in the sunshine, change, but yeah. I, um, I came to have a chat with Steve last week uh, which was enormously helpful as well so I'm, I'm not very good company at the moment that's all I'm, all I'm conscious of you were, just, you were just grateful that someone else was looking pale and slightly <laughs> drab <laughs> yeah I came to make myself feel better the, um, yeah but thank you you're all very nice it makes me dreadfully uncomfortable people being nice to me Next time I see you, we can just do the normal thing. Yeah, well, let, let, let us know when the moment has passed yeah. so that we can revert <laughs> to normal. really rude again. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's, it's much easier. It's much, there's, there's a love in that as well, I think, that we appreciate. So I'll just let you um, kind of try to find some sort of segue. See you. <laughs> Enjoy. Rory's now left. I feel terrible. 
Terrible. Why did I say that thing about Re- why did I say that thing about Reacher? Because Chinch, you knew how we were going to now perform a very very sharp turn into other content, and you've given me an opportunity to do that. So thank you. Oh, that's what I did. Is that what you I did? D- is that what I did though? Well, please yes. tell me that's what I did. T- tell me if it works. You can get oh. in touch with the podcast at Set Piece Menu, as many of you have done, and thank you for all your comments, particularly about our short hiatus. Um, setpiecemenu at gmail.com and also on Facebook. We're going to post uh, the details of the Just Giving site. Uh, there, but um, a huge majority, funnily enough, of the emails that we received since we were last with you focus very much on the raunchy, out of context Reacher feature. Really? So, Chinch, here are your notes provided by listeners, some of which have clearly been uh, given a dose of the vapors. Uh, dear fellow Harlequin romance aficionados, <laughs> having just mopped myself up the f- off the floor after listening to the most recent out of context Reacher, it is with great sadness that I bid you farewell before the inevitable flood of indecency complaints come pouring into Ofcom and the FCC here in the States. While the New York Times' Rory Smith is likely to survive such a lascivious scandal thanks to the phalanx of lawyers his, employ- his employer can hurl at the problem, I worry for Hugh and Steve as the likely tidal wave of outrage this incident will undoubtedly produce is bound to sweep them away as mere pawns in a cruel game. Godspeed, gentlemen. That's sincerely from Edward in Buffalo, New York. Remember Ed Prislucky? Mm. Um, he is passing now, he says, East Aurora and approaching the outskirts of Buffalo status. He says, we couldn't possibly comment. From Matthew Plunkett in LA. On Reacher, he says, in the era of XG and XA, (laughs) Reacher is in need of his own analytical breakdown. I propose XO, the expected orgasm. (laughs) You see how we've taken this sharp turn? In the reading from episode 148, Opta came back with the following. Jack Reacher's XO, (laughs) 1.32. Officer Devereaux's XO, 2.79. Just goes to show you, Reacher is nothing if not generous. (laughs) And number two, he says, my morning commute takes me through some canyons just north of Los Angeles. Andy's reading coincided with a particularly treacherous part of the road, which nearly left me careening over the edge of a cliff as I tried to wipe the tears of laughter from my eyes. A well-executed reading of some of the finest literature produced since The Bard, uh, says Matt in LA. And finally, uh, from Shanat Ramachandran, who uh, signs off Buffalo Shan. This is a good reminder of the fact that we bestowed the title upon him because we certainly couldn't remember ourselves. Shan says, have been loving the podcast over the last year. It has been what has kept me going through all my night shifts and all the patients in Ward 9, he says, are regularly treated to Chinch's dulcet tones at 2 a.m. Keep up the good work. Again, love the podcast. Really wanted to go to the set piece menu live, but annoyingly, I'm on nights that week. So unless one of your listeners fancies doing an orthopedic night shift for me, I'm afraid I'll have to catch up via iTunes. I would be amenable, he says, to doing a shift of any particular job in return. Keep smashing it. Buffalo Shan. At setpiecemenu at gmail.com at setpiecemenu. So yes, the live show is happening. Uh, We are now less than a month away from our 100th episode, which will be both spectacular and live. It forms part of the Manchester Podcast Festival. If you'd like to join us at the Anthony Burgess Foundation in Manchester, just go to manchesterpodcastfestival.com and click on our logo, follow the links, and just for £10, that ticket could be yours and you could run through the streets like Charlie before his visit to the chocolate factory. Uh, Now, this will sound very unbecoming, but please do come. Please, please do come. And in an effort to make it worth it, we are now able to announce that Chinch has promised two things. Firstly, that he will be wearing Super Dry. (laughs) 
And secondly, that he will be telling a soccer story with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details included. <laughs> and therefore, will not be on any subsequent podcast released after the event. So you have to come to the show to hear it. So please, come to the show, unless you are particularly skilled in the world of litigation, in which case we really don't, um, because we can't afford it. Do you know what so we, yes, head to the ManchesterPodcastFestival.com website. We could, do, we could, put, the, we could put the story out in the, in the recorded version of the podcast, but it would be like if you were watching the 10 o'clock news on the BBC and HD when they go to the local news you just get a holding screen for sort of five or six yeah. minutes it'll be that sort of yeah. you know just suddenly will just be some music bubbling underneath whilst Chinch is telling we, we wouldn't need story. either a bleep or maybe a farmyard noise to, <laughs> to, 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 to many we're going to and need if, if it's the story you're thinking of you that I'm certainly thinking of Trivial Pursuit, is that what we're thinking it's here? It's going to be Trivial Pursuit. Uh, our subject today comes in the form of a very simple question, uh, and it's got nothing to do with the Trivial Pursuit story. Why do footballers do stupid things? Just in the last few weeks, two Derby players have admitted to drink driving, something which led to a crash that caused a third, Richard Keogh, to suffer a season-ending and fairly a gruesome injury. Bernardo Silva thought it best to engage in what he considered hashtag bans with Benjamin Mendy, via Twitter, not a perhaps more personal forum. And upon James Madison's withdrawal from the England squad through illness, he decided to spend the evening at a casino. His hoodie was on, so how he didn't get away with it, I will never know. Now we know that they're only human. But still, why do footballers do stupid things? This will concentrate off the field because there are plenty of stupid things on the field that happen, uh, but perhaps that's something that we'll consider on a future date. Why do footballers do stupid things? What percentage of foot? Because it's not all footballers do. We, we've all done silly things in our lives. I did silly things when I was footballers off the pitch. immediately closing ranks. No, not at all. Not at all. I'm saying we need to put this into perspective. Saying not everybody is the same, but we've all done silly things. But certain players, maybe, is it? It's reported more now with social media. Probably things are noticed more now. Players get away with a. Uh, a lot less as well. But I also but think the footballers generally have a better lifestyle. So yes, there yes, is yes, the, yes. the yin and the yang of that yeah, argument. I've, I've always felt I've always felt it was to do with maturity and to do with the environment in which they work. Because it is it's a it's a very weird working environment. I, I can't see anything similar to it in any other line of work. And then also with the with the growth in the the incomes of the players as well, that then fuels a lot of this behaviour or maybe the belief that you are untouchable and as a footballer you can do things which in inverted commas normal people don't do but ultimately I, I do feel it is a lack of maturity and um, people say well these lads are in their 20s they're bound to behave yes but also I, I, I do feel that they, they don't probably have the opportunities when they go into the football environment to develop themselves as people as, as, as a person as well as a, a footballer. So maybe, it's, again, they, they, they just fall into this trap of they're getting huge amounts of money, they are cosseted, or their travel is taken care of, or their, you know, their training gear, their match gear, their boots, everything is taken, they're totally catered for completely from start to finish. They're paid a huge amount of money as well. So maybe because it is such an unusual environment and they feel that um, the outside world doesn't then encroach necessarily on them, which it probably doesn't. Do they really think about what's happening in the real world? Um, so they, they see themselves as a, as a kind of a unique kind of species who behave, can behave in, in ways that other normal people don't. It's also an issue with footballers in that so much of their life in terms of what they do around the club is heavily regulated. Mm. But then they have this huge amount of time to themselves outside of the control of the club 
which in which they're allowed their minds can run crazy with what they're going to do with their time and their money and I suppose it's how again the kind of person that you are and how you fill that extra time I, I do feel football now from from talking to, to players who are involved in the game it, it isn't basically a 10 o'clock in the morning till midday and the rest of the day is yours there's a lot more to it now they do sit in classrooms they do study a lot more they watch the opposition there, there's a lot more involved and the science and the the the, the, the dietitians so they are more heavily involved probably in the sport than than ever before that has certainly developed but you're right they do have a lot of free time and then it really becomes the type of person that you are how you then behave but then if you're given because of maybe your stature and how people see you as a footballer the amount of money that you earn as well enables you to to buy things and do things that people of your age would not be able to do do you feel indestructible and untouchable so you you can until something actually comes crashing in like you you crash a car or you're caught drink driving or you behave badly in other ways suddenly the world the real world comes crashing in and they say you, you simply can't do this is that then a surprise to players when the authorities step in or the police step in and say, well, you, you can't do this. This is, this is illegal behaviour. But maybe, again, in the football environment, and it's, it's hard to explain to people from the outside what it's like on the inside. And it has changed since I was playing. But I, I remember what the mentality was like. You do feel that the world just revolves around the training ground, the team coach, the stadium that you're playing in, and the group of people that you that you see day to day. And you, you don't, and I can speak from experience, you don't tend to think about what is, is happening out there. But hopefully I was slightly different in many ways. I had a very good education. I've been to a grammar school, so I'd studied, I continued to read, and I, I did take a, an interest in the world outside of football as well. Hopefully that did help me while I was playing. And then I think it certainly helped me when I, le when I left the game, because I hopefully had the intellectual ability to step into the media and into another world, which I knew was vitally important because I was 32 and my football career had ended, but I had years, decades of life ahead of me that I knew I needed to find something to do. And I was probably in a better position than most to, to fall into another line of work. But, so before we get on to the idea of, you know, boys will be boys in this immaturity thing, yeah. you, you've talked about the clubs. Do they have something to answer for here? Because is there this, this fact that this, this, they make players feel indestructible because minor indiscretions are, are papered over. They are perhaps permitted because of the talent mm -hmm. that those young individuals have that you there's the yin and the yang isn't there that you will forgive the minor indiscretions because of the brilliance they might be capable of on the football pitch yes they are assets exactly yeah. but is the issue here then when something huge happens that's very visual that the club cannot control the the PR around that if you like mm -hmm. that these players are still living in the world in which they can get away with anything. So therefore, they are unaware of the consequences of their actions. So the clubs are kind of perpetuating yeah, yeah. The, the, the lives that they live. And again, the clubs are... Probably, again, yeah, if the, if the clubs look at those players as purely assets, which they are, they're paying them very good money to play football for their clubs. So if things happen, of course, unless it's so heinous that the clubs have to say, look, we have no choice but to, to sack you for this because... Or breach of conduct or mis gross misconduct. Absolutely, yes. And, and clubs can, can clearly do that as well. But then the clubs are put in a difficult position or, or seemingly difficult position because if you've got a star player who's behaved in a certain way, under normal circumstances, you probably would be sacked from the job that you do. But they think, hang on a minute, if we can, well, we'll see what happens here. But if this guy is still available to us, we still need him to do a job for us and our success might, we might be banking on someone like that. So again, that then fuels, again, do the players genuinely feel that consequences have hit them and hit them hard? Because normally, if you lose your, that, that's the way when, when circumstances change dramatically, you behave badly and you are sacked from your job, then suddenly 
you've got to then think again about where you go. But then maybe another club would take that person on anyway. So again, you talk about the club's responsibility is to say, well, actually, yeah, that club have let him go. But, you know, he served his time. He's, he's, had, he's committed the crime, served his time. Now he's available again. He's a very good footballer. We've got every right to pick him up again. So the player, in essence, is he really, truly, does he feel as though he, he has kind of... Um, behaved in the right way for the actions that he's that, that, that he's, he's conducted so again you're probably right I never really thought about that the clubs do have a huge responsibility um, in in how they deal with their players and maybe in a way they're facilitating their players to continue to behave this way when they behave badly yeah I, I have a certain degree of sympathy with the clubs in under those circumstances yeah, because yes you would love to think that somebody can take the moral high ground mm. but as you mentioned they're, they're assets that have not only been uh, had a huge amount invested in them mm. but they are also potentially worth huge amounts of money that you simply cannot just write off yeah even if there is a, a demand within society that that would be the right way to go and to use the Derby situation. I know there was an awful lot of Derby supporters, season ticket holders, hardcore Derby fans who felt that those involved should never play for the club again. But once the club have fined the players the maximum amount that they were permitted to do so, which was six weeks, and obviously they've then got to let the legal system take its course as well, is that they've got to think in the terms of, well, if we get rid of these assets... That's not only going to leave us massively out of pocket, but there is always another club who will take advantage of that situation because the history of football is littered with players who have been given opportunity after opportunity. And there is always a club or a manager who think we can get this footballer on the straight and narrow. You use the word, Steve, uh, consequences. And is, is the difference between be, being a child without responsibilities and being an adult with responsibilities, the understanding that there are consequences to your actions. Mm -hmm. And given that we've started off and, and the whole conversation I imagine will have the word immaturity uh, kind of yeah. as a cloud above it yeah. Chinch was there a moment in your life because you got married very young you were a very young footballer but you also got married very young so you weren't the philanderer no. um, certainly not at that stage in your life um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that had a different path to others so was there a point in your life where you thought right I am now an adult and it didn't necessarily coincide with you starting your football career, even if it no. happened younger. So there are going to be those football players who don't necessarily play as young as you or start a family and get married as young as you, although a lot of them do, um, because, again, the trappings of um, fame and uh, financial security allows these players who are young mm -hmm. to be in a position in their life where they are able to afford all of these things, even if they're not necessarily ready for them in terms of their maturity. But was, was there a moment for you where you thought, right, I'm suddenly aware that there are consequences to my actions and therefore I am an adult? I was, I was, I was a, you won't be surprised to hear, some, uh, somewhat of a, a strange child. Strange in a, in a, in a, in a, in a harmless way, not, not in an aggressive way. When did you grow was, out of that? I was, I don't think I've ever grown out of it. But I, but I and at the time when I was, when I was growing up, I did feel very uncomfortable because I wasn't like everybody else. I didn't think like everybody else. I, I didn't, you know, in sport, I was kind of six or seven years old. I was doing stuff that other kids at that age weren't doing. So I knew I was slightly different, but it, it, kids at that age, you do feel uncomfortable being different. But eventually that was kind of what saw me through because that was the person that I was at that age when I was kind of 14 joining Man City signing schoolboy forms as it was then becoming a, a professional at 16 17 I was think I remember when I signed my first contract thinking about setting up a pension I was 16 17 years old 
Now, how many, it's very rare that people, I, I saw the end of my career when mine was starting. Steve's face is telling a story in itself. He's, he's looking very quizzical at someone, how someone so young could, could think ahead. I mean, that's how is, so much. That's, but that's, again, that's the way that I, that my brain works. That's, and that's his the way face. It was. That's his face when he's offered condiments with any sort of lunchtime food. Oh, I see. So it's right. a very regular expression. That so that's not unusual, because I just said, you know, I was thinking about my pension at 16, and he seemed, seemed to pull a very strange, quizzical face, but that, that's, that's just his face, normal face. That's a face that, that, okay. that, that greets somebody arriving at Stephen's door uh, driving a French-made car. I see, right. So this is standard <laughs> standard expression, yeah. I take there, it. There right, are okay. many reasons that's why good. Stephen pulls this face. Okay. I'm just, how has society allowed you to fall through the cracks like that, Chinch? In, I mean, in surely, what way? In, 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 within modern society, a 16-year-old who was even contemplating setting up a pension, that would, that would set off an alarm somewhere, wouldn't it? In what it? way? In the what authorities way? would be all over that. We need to keep a very, very careful eye on this person. Oh, this guy's going to be the future of the media in, in 35 years. That's probably what a lot of people were thinking as Th- well. 35? 35 foot. Yes, that works. That's the, I've done the math. <laughs> oh, it so, works perfectly so you've, well. You've already made it. Yes, this is I, not, this I is feel I've still got a lot of work to do, but I'm well on the track. But anyway, that's well done, again. Well done for delivering math. To our audience see what on I did both there. sides see what of the Atlantic, Alan Partridge. But anyway, yeah. So again, you've got to think how many play, how many youngsters coming into the game were thinking along those lines. So maybe the education I'd had, maybe, the t- but ultimately the type of person that I was, you know, whether I become a welder, which I clearly was never going to do because I was a brilliant footballer, but becoming a footballer was just what myself as a person did. So I tended to carry on, and and this is what I, gave me a bit of solace during my football career is that you know reading and doing all the stuff that I'd I'd, I'd done from from kind of four. 14 years old I, I continued to do people around me my teammates found it very strange but the more they got to know me and realized I was a likable wonderful footballer they they Who couldn't realize well that they, they the you know life. give me the outsider by Albert Camus and let me read it I'm sure Neville Southall said that to me anyway but this is this is the thing and I met like my like meeting Pat Nevin and meeting Barry Horn educate who'd come into football maybe in slightly different ways had had a, a university education maybe as well I saw that there were people out there that I had a a thread with which which was comforting as well you're not completely alone but it's having a strength in believing that that that, that is right and it was right for me because it was me but again you do fall I, I will admit you do fall into the trap when the money comes along you do do things that footballers do with the cars and the houses and all that type of thing and the watches and but again when I got to the end of my career I realized that again you're just dressing yourself up in footballers clothes and and jewelry. it isn't that was never me but that, that that's that's, mature. that's that's growing up to be an adult I, I, in, again like but I think I was more of an adult, an adult at 16 17 than so again when I was maybe late 20s and I'd had I got two kids so I was 27 28 it, uh, again I'd probably had and learned more and matured more a 27-year-old, 28-year-old footballer today, not, they're all not like this, but I, I would guarantee that they're probably in their early 20s mentally because they've maybe not been that person to start with or had the influences going through football that, that I had because football, of course, has, has changed in the last 25 years or so. So maybe it's a little bit dismissive to say, well, you know, why do players behave like this when they have all the opportunities not to? But ultimately, again, is it the environment bearing down on them so they feel obliged to behave in a certain way? And I do hear stories of, of 
you know, a player will see Eden Hazard walking into a game with a pair of big headphones on, so he'll wear a big headphones to think that's what footballers do. And we all do that as kids. We all try and, and be part of the but, crowd. So but, you do fall into that trap of being a footballer. But ultimately, th- there comes a point when hopefully that falls away and the true person who is a footballer comes through. And then you can influence people around you as well. We'll, we'll come on to that in just a second and take a backward step but to, over to Stephen. Yeah, I just... It's also... So, we've, you know, we've got our Benjamin Button footballer here who's planning <laughs> pensions at the age of 16. He's probably going to go... He's go never going to let this lie. Gonna gonna go gonna crazy. He just said you were Brad Pitt. Really? No. Yes. No, no. A character played by Brad Pitt <laughs> yeah. is not necessary. Benjamin Button played by Ian Dowie. Is that, what you, is that the road we're going down here? <laughs> yeah, they needed less makeup under those circumstances. But the, the immaturity thing interests me because, you know, how different is a footballer in his early 20s to a regular guy in his yeah. early 20s? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think back to, you know, when, when Hugh and I first met at that sort of age doing similar jobs and I guess we felt like the res- weight of responsibility to, to work hard to further ourselves in our careers and our so huge audiences on the radio obviously had a great responsibility to them hypothetically someone had given you millions of pounds at that age to do that job exactly. do you feel it would have borne down on you you would have be, been different people conducting yeah, yourself exactly. differently at that, at, that ch- at that stage we're living paycheck to paycheck aren't we so the idea of reckless behaviour yes. was was simply beyond us really you know because we the consequence of that were too heavy a weight in many ways to bear whereas I suppose for for a footballer that is not necessarily the case because you be, you believe you're indestructible you I remember you you've talked brilliantly in the past about this idea that at that sort of age in the early stages of your career you have no comprehension of the idea that your your professional days as a footballer will be yeah, over in the next right. decade and a half and therefore you need to think about those responsibilities further down the line so is it you know are they victims of their environment is it a situation where well a bit of banter with a teammate extends to banter with the entire dressing room to be well that's hilarious mm-hmm. and everyone will think that's hilarious which I suppose brings us around to the sort of Bernardo yes. Silva yes. situation that he was talking about at the beginning that you know clearly something that he felt was funny mm-hmm. and that perhaps he already knew that his teammate found it hilarious as well so therefore a wider audience would they're yes. not thinking beyond mm. the immediate situation that they're not and thinking beyond the dressing room yeah. but also basically. Bernardo Silva even Silver. though it's wrong in the dressing room that's the crazy thing it's wrong in whether it's two people talking or in a dressing room or on social media it's wrong across the board they're, they're, and, but they're, those, those things I would imagine happen in all workplaces but in terms of the football example, which is a Bernardo Silva, Benjamin Mendy example, you are talking about a, Bernardo Silva is an incredibly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And if we're making comparisons with those footballers who don't necessarily have the intelligence to understand the consequences of their actions, whether they are of adult age or they are a young player, mm-hmm. you, you, you have a player who, who is, and, and that is why, and probably not necessarily in the best way, Pep Guardiola jumped to his defence. So there are still situations where you are almost dragging somebody who in the outside world will be completely fine on his own two feet, but there's, there's something within Bernardo Silva who thought that that would be better on Twitter yes. than it would be on a private text to his friend where only two people were in on it and those two people completely understood the context. And of course, that's the other thing between a professional footballer and you know regular Joe blogs of a similar age in terms of the, the global reach that they have within that, that role in life that they currently lead. And that, but that's the kind of thing I find extraordinary is that a footballer must be acutely aware of the adulation of thousands if not millions of people when they score a brilliant goal in a stadium with 40,000 people in and it's replayed to a TV audience of millions yet they don't seem to be quite so aware of that global reach and appeal when 
when they're well, doing it's different when you can't see your audience exactly, yeah. but it's also when this process starts because you think well, when I was playing I was at school up to kind of 14 years old schoolboy forms apprentice at 16 these kids are at, at clubs now from five six years old and if they've got any promise of that age Kids are maybe being told, and agents are getting involved in this as well. You've got families looking at the situation, knowing financially what it might do Sportswear for the family. Companies as Sportswear well. companies, boots. So again, this process might be starting at 8, 9, 10, where these kids are being told, you know what, you're a, you're a superstar. In six or seven years, you, you could be playing for the first mm -hmm. team at Man United. So does that process, again, it's not as if kids are going through the school system, which I tended to think it was. You go through the school system, then step out of the classroom into the dressing room, and suddenly then the football world bears down on you, and it maybe can change you. But actually, maybe that process has already started from five, six years old, and the pressure is on then. So it's no surprise that maybe when they get into the dressing, they've already been told how great they are. The fact that they're getting probably well paid at 17, 16, 17. They're probably getting huge amounts of money playing academy football. The sponsors are looking at them for thinking, well, if we get in now, maybe we'll get them a bit cheaper later on. We don't want to miss the boat here. And so loyalty again, as well. this is all being fueled from a much younger age maybe than we ever appreciated. So we, I shouldn't really be surprised that maybe in their mid-20s, that these lads maybe see themselves as totally indestructible because that's all they've ever been told for the past maybe 15 years. By the way, I noticed Chinch sort of tailed off as he was, gonna, as he was saying, you're going to be a superstar in six or seven years' time. You could be playing for Manchester United's first team. And he suddenly thought, yeah. actually, they, currently that might not make them feel quite as, as good I, as I it would have done. I United as an example because it's... it's well, it was quite a big club. It was. Yeah, people around the world, because they will listen to this. So, they, they if, yeah, if I, if I said maybe Blackburn Rovers, no disrespect to Blackburn Rovers, but again, it might not carry as much weight. So, yes, yeah, so you're going to be a star at Manchester City then. How about that? But basically, are we expecting too much of our footballers? Do we have to accept these occasional indiscretions in the same way as we're expecting too much of our football clubs to really deal with preventing it, cutting it off at source, because, you know, the exceptional always have character flaws. But it's it, sort of, it's, it's part of life, entertainment, music, but also, business, Also, whatever. this happening with the Derby players, we've got to say, well, okay, is that a one-off and completely out of character for footballers to behave in this way? Just because they've had car crashes and been caught drink drive, that might be happening across the board. With, and I'm quite happy to say, again, when I was playing, I did things that I clearly should not have done. But again, you feel you can get away with them. You had the, 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 the money to buy nice cars. And, and you, you do feel slightly different than other people. So again, if this is happening across the board and people aren't getting caught because they're, they're crashing their cars and, and being caught drink driving, then we've got to deal with the, the, the issue is there completely. It's just that we're hearing about these one-off major incidents, but they might not be one-offs. They might be more, and I'm sure that they are. They happen more than we, we think. So if this is a problem where footballers are behaving like this, then we have to... But again, how do you... Who steps in? Who steps in? Apart from the person themselves or someone helping them realise... And I was very lucky to, to work with fabulous coaches who helped me not only improve the way that I played, but improve the way I thought and... I thought about myself and about my teammates as people, not just footballers. So I was very fortunate, the type of person that I was maybe, and the influences on me at key times in my life helped me develop probably very differently than, than most footballers. But again, who, when, can anyone step in? Can an outside source step in and, and help this situation? You know, if you, if you were to go in and speak to a dressing room full of... I know what it was like when people used to come in and speak to us about pensions, even though I'd already set mine up four years previously. If people come in and talk about something that's relatively boring, players will sit there and they'll chew their gum and they'll listen to it for half an hour and then none of it will sink in. So again, it's how we actually change the mentality of the... 
do we just pa pass it on to the clubs or the, the players themselves to say, you need to realise what's going wrong? Because look at these incidents and they all, they're all terrible. Do you not realise that you have to take the step up and change yourselves? I, I said we were going to go back to something. And the thing that I wanted to go back to was your story, Chinch, about Ed Nazar going in with yeah. uh, headphones to a game and then the young players seeing that and say, well, that's what a footballer is, so I'm going to copy that. That, that is a story that people understand uh, whether you're a footballer or you're not, because it's essentially the uh, the story of of growing up at school, and you yeah. find those influences as now is the word, but not necessarily in a school context, where you think to be so oh, he's really cool, I want to be like him, or she's really cool, yeah. I want to be like her, mm -hmm. and and that shapes the way that you behave. It doesn't necessarily make you you, but it makes you a version of you that makes you happier. So, what what kind of parallels can you draw with those growing up in school and feeling incredibly insecure yeah. and seeking solace and acceptance from others with the dressing room where and quite a lot of this conversation has resonance at the moment because Peter Crouch has got a, a new book out and he's uh, while it's full of very funny stories he talks about the kind of the idiocy of the modern footballer and mm -hmm. how they behave and how it's just completely ridiculous but it has social consequences doesn't it but all this behavior so can you understand that there will yeah. be an understanding at least from those people who have gone through that at school or are going through that at school yeah. because the dressing room is the same but what you're doing is you're advancing those people 10 years mm -hmm. and giving them lots of money yes so that it, it's an extraordinarily difficult kind of mindset to have and situation to be in, it's incredibly difficult to express yourself. Yeah. You can't, as Peter Crouch said, and you always say, don't read a book in their presence because you will essentially be bullied. You yes. will be told that you are not one of them. You are different. You're an outsider by Albert Camus. Um, <laughs> and you, 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 you don't fit in. So, so these are feelings that we all know if we were at school and had those situations, but they are happening in the most incredible yeah. set of circumstances under an incredible amount of pressure where you have to perform in front of thousands it, of people. It is completely understandable. And again, that's where we keep talking about immaturity and maturity, because again, if this is happening at school, and it is absolutely true, we all, and, and I did the same, you try and fit in. So you, you don't want to stand out as a, as, a, as a child, as a kid. So when you go into a, if you are, say, 20 and you go into a, a dressing room with senior players, the first thing you want to do is feel accepted and be part of that environment. You don't want to stand out, but it's because of your age that you stand out. So again, you'd maybe start to behave in certain ways to convince the more senior players in that dressing room that you are okay. But again, that's when it, it is incredible, absolutely, because it is a form of bullying because the senior players maybe, and it's a, a measure of control. And it, it, is, it is very, very difficult. I understand completely why it happens. But again, if, if we're having these problems, again, within the dressing room, how much damage can be done there is one thing. When it influences the outside world, when people are tweeting certain things that, that people are clearly not happy with, or you're drink driving and crashing your car and potentially killing people. This is taking the banter, the, the silliness of a dressing room out into the real world when that's becoming incredibly dangerous. So what we're trying to do is, of course you want to have, an, an, in any sporting environment with a, a group of men especially, you're going to have a certain dynamic. That is inevitable. But again, I, I've seen two very different sides of it. When I was first involved in the game, very young, football was very different. The way footballers thought was different. There was a change when I was certainly at, at Everton and at Sheffield Wednesday, but again, it was the people in that dressing room that, that changed the environment, the coaches that I worked under, the senior players that I worked under, that were, were proper men who understood their responsibility to themselves, to their younger teammates, to the club, and to the outside world. Maybe we've now gone on to another level, and is it just the money and the profile of players that again has advanced them to such a degree that they are completely insulated and great carry on as you want to do within the dressing room as long as no one gets 
mortally injured in the dressing room, fine. But if that spills over into the real world, then something has to be done, I feel, for, again, how the players are conducting themselves. Because that silliness and banter of a dressing room is fine. But when it goes into the, and it, it spills over into something much more dangerous and possibly deadly to, to innocent people, and it may seem as though we're over-egging this, but we're not. We've seen recently with the Derby story, that could have been absolutely horrendous and there could have been innocent people killed in that situation. So again, we've got to say, are we doing enough when these things happen? Are the consequences, are the, are the players really taking on how they're behaving or are they just hoping to get through a difficult situation and get back to playing again and hopefully everything will be forgotten? Or is this going to change them inherently to become different people and to then most importantly influence people around them and the younger players coming up behind them as well? Because that, that's what you're trying to do. The next generation has to be better than yours. And that's what I felt when I was at Sheffield Wednesday in my early 30s, a lot of injury problems, when I had time to watch and see how people conducted themselves from the sidelines. And that's when you, you see the potential that young players have and you want to encourage that and help that and develop the person because that person will become an even stronger footballer if of themselves as a person believe in what they're doing and I as a 32 year old can help someone who's maybe 22 by my experiences and just giving them the right types of encouragement so it can be done and I felt an obligation to do that so maybe if that's the senior players in the dressing room or whether it's the club's philosophy or whether it's outside influences that have to step in here and help, something needs to be done because sadly we've, we've had stories where people have been killed and that is ultimately as, as bad as it can ever be. And, and it's harder, I'd imagine, as days go by of kind of controlling that aspect of it because you're able to control what, what happens within the four walls of the club but it's much harder to control what happens outside with, uh, for all sorts of reasons. But um, the final point was the final of the three examples I brought up at the beginning and that's James Madison and I'm... I'm attempting to not project here, but if you if you take him as an example, he'd been called up into the England squad. He was uh, eventually released, withdrawn because of illness, and he went to the casino and splashed on the front page of the Sun on Sunday and, and all the associated issues that have followed thereafter about his uh, senses of responsibility, uh, given that it was an international weekend. He has an incredibly intense life as a high-profile footballer playing in the Premier League. He sought some sort of release from that intensity at a time where he was emotionally not in a good place. He has decided to do that, whether it's regular for him or not, I do not know. He has decided to do that in a way that has ended up being very embarrassing and could lead to disciplinary measures or potential difficulty in him returning to the England squad. Their lives are incredibly intense. We cannot ever imagine what it must be like to try and perform in front of all those people on a regular basis and to if you think these things as a footballer maybe you don't but to justify the incredible amount of wages that you're paying and to try and at least build bridges with those who follow you who of course cannot compute what that kind of money uh, must do so there is is there not an element of release that can sometimes go wrong because of all the things that we've mentioned about bad choices mm -hmm. but the release is that necessary is that um, something that you can understand it's, yeah, happening it's what form that release takes clearly now with James Madison again the, the gambling issue going to a casino he's got every right to go to a casino it's not illegal to do that but also in terms of the timing of it and his responsibilities and Harry Kane talked about this and Gareth Southgate the responsibility that you have any footballer has a responsibility to their club and rightly so but also when you make the step up to, to, to England level the scrutiny is going to be even, even and so the timing of it was clearly but again you know, no one's died from this, so someone can, you can learn from this. You'll probably hopefully understand, but then hope will he change his behaviour or think, well, next time I'll just make sure that I don't get 
caught doing it? Or will he say, yeah, I realise now with what I've just been through, I've just been released from an England squad, I'm meant to be ill, and then suddenly I'm at a casino. It just doesn't, it doesn't quite sit. But again, it's how the players perceive that. Is the problem is that they've been caught out or is, do they actually realise that this is maybe something they shouldn't be doing at this time? Of course, drinking and then getting into a car, at no point does that justify the pressure or the intensity that, that players are under when they play. That is completely and utterly wrong. There's no justification for that, whatever the circumstances. I went through a very difficult time. I lost my mum when, when I was 19 years old. I, I couldn't then say, well, you know what, I'm going to go out drinking and drive my car into, and, and behave like I want to do because this has happened to me. For certain people, that might be the way that they deal with it. But again, clearly it's not right and they need help to deal with those situations. Because again, real life is crashing in to an environment which is, which is really unique. So the players do need a lot of help. And again, if they're not mature enough to, to deal with these horrible situations or just make the wrong choices as they go along, it's about, it's, of course, it's about education, about learning from the mistakes that you make and making sure that you, you, you don't do them again. And there's reasons why people are saying you shouldn't be doing this. Do you understand why we're saying? Not just the fact you got caught is, is why it's wrong. It's the fact you shouldn't be doing this in the first place. And do you appreciate why you shouldn't be doing this in the first place? Um, but it, it is. It is just about education. And, but how this happens, again, what, what source that takes. And it maybe is a combination of things as well. But ultimately, I do feel we always go on about the money that footballers earn is... Is that the, the root of all this where, you know, a lot of people will, will earn a lot of money, but they'll do an awful lot of good things with it and won't behave in the ways, the bad ways that we see that, that come out in the press. They, they will do a lot of good stuff and realise how fortunate they are to be picking up this money. And it's not their fault they're paid as well as they are. That's just the environment they work in. And if I suppose most people out there, if someone said we can pay you a pound to do this job or £100,000 a week, which one would you rather have? You'd clearly take... The, the most money because you can do more with it so again there's there's no problem with the amount of money but it's how you handle that unique environment again it's an environment which has been ramped up massively over the 20 years financially and i just wonder whether players feel well i've got the money i've got maybe the lawyers i've got the people around me i've got my agents i've got my family i've got everybody on my side here so basically i'm at the center of this storm but ultimately i am i can be protected in a way that other people aren't. And is it the money and the thought of having that and being that wealthy person, does that make, again, the environment, does it change the, the people inherently and they behave in different ways because of it? And give you an incredible security net and comfort blanket to potentially uh, make those decisions harder to make uh, correctly. Um, the the, the on-pitch aspect is something that I think we'll return to in an accompanying second part mm -hmm. uh, to this conversation. Uh, perhaps we'll do that next week. But for now, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Nori. What a soccer story. This is unlike the live show when Andy Hinchcliffe tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel worthy details removed you two have known me for a long time too long too yeah. long and you know how keen I am on self-analysis and self-improvement they are my are they watch words they've got a hyphen I think self-analysis is quite high up for you self-improvement when are self we going to see the evidence of that if I, if I self-analyse then I naturally will self-improve no that does not yes, follow yes that's what I'm saying and we're going to stick with it well when I first started in this business in the biz I was absolutely... Can I give you sorry? some analysis and potential improvement points about that last phrase? Yes, go on. In dabiz. Yeah, just yeah. for the kids out there. Analysis, terrible. Improvement, needed. Yeah, but for the kids out there, they'll understand exactly... If they didn't understand in the business, in dabiz, they clearly would understand what I'm going to... They'll not understand anything from this point onwards. But anyway, when I first started in this business, I was terrified of everything and everyone. 
Not not you, Hugh. I, I, I like Steve. I, I just dislike you. I wasn't afraid of you. Um, <laughs> but doing kind of commentaries and then being asked to interview people, anybody, players, coaches, it terrified me. Terrified me. Because I thought, why on Because I wasn't skilled at it. And why on earth would anyone want to listen to my questions? Can you remember the first one I asked you to do? The first interview you asked me to do... Was it Joe... wasn't Joe yes, Royal. Was it, it Joe, Joe Royal? Yes. And I was, again, someone I'd known for a long period of time, but been asked to do that and being put into um, a different area. Because something I'd, I'd never simply never done before. I didn't know how to structure questions. What, what, what areas do you cover? It's something I'd never done before. Even watching you do it probably didn't teach me much either so it was Excellent yes so analysis. from joe royal that's a great that's yes from joe royal and how nervous i was and how terrible i'm sure the interview was Excellent. very recently it was a televisual feast when myself and uh, mr jürgen klopp were on screen together <laughs> Laura Woods was there, Don Goodman was there, but the main two, the central two, there was four of us, and Jürgen, as I like to call him now, and I, were, were the main characters, were the central characters. And it was strange, because after the MK Dons Liverpool Carabao Cup tie, I was a, a, a guest, a, an excellent guest on that production that evening. <laughs> the game was decent, but the analysis More was -analysis. extraordinary. Self-analysis, vastly analysis. improved. Um, I didn't know that Jürgen, Jürgen was going to come over and have a post-match chat with us. Now, if I go back to my Joe Royal days and I knew that Jürgen Klopp, Jürgen Klopp was going to come over and have a chat and they were expecting me to come up with searing, insightful questions for the Dutch not the Dutch, the German master. <laughs> Good prep. Good job I didn't say that. Um, I, I, would, I would have been, but I was actually straight, when I saw him coming around the corner, coming out of the, the, um, around the technical area, and he was signing all his autographs, and we knew that he was on his way over to us, I was really keen to do it. So maybe it's, it's taken, that must be a good 10 years, isn't it? To go from Joe Royal to Jurgen Klopp. No, that's 15. 15 years. You've so it has taken a fair chunk of time. You've been retired an awful lot longer than I you have. have. I've been, been retired longer than I played, which is... Oh, a really depressing thought. But anyway, Jürgen turns, and I'm thinking, get over here, Cloppy. I want to ask you some questions. So again, I call him Clippity now. It's his, oh, I call him Clippity. He calls me Chinch. It's, it's great. And we've, we've exchanged numbers. Um, so we're, we, are, we are firm friends, even though he didn't say that we were. No. But it was just, again, just the, how I really, I actually enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. We were talking about, because Liverpool fielded a very young side that day. Harvey Elliott played, 16 years old, and he hit the crossbar and he hit the post and he had a really good day. So, again, if it's a young team, Liverpool obviously trying to win Champions Leagues and Premier Leagues, it was, again, the Carabao. Is this how you're going to approach the Carabao Cup? Are we going to see a lot of your young players get opportunities in the And particularly, I actually asked him about Harvey Elliott and said, well, you've mentioned all the other young players, but Harvey Elliott, I said, I started playing at, at 16. You know, this lad in the, playing for Liverpool, European champions at 16. I said, you can tell us a bit about his performance tonight and how impressed, because basically he's a boy playing in a, a man's game. Great question, isn't it? Wonderfully constructed. And he just, I don't know how he, he answered it. I don't know what he heard me say, but he answered it a completely different question. <laughs> so uh, maybe I wasn't clear enough in saying, tell us about Harvey Elliott and his great performance tonight, Jürgen. That must have got lost in translation a little bit. Because he started talking about something completely different and never mentioned Harvey Elliott. Is so where have I gone wrong with well, that? Because you asked the wrong? question in Dutch, probably. <laughs> probably, yes. Did I? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even ask it in German. I asked it in English. I would like to say that uh, in the early years where Chinch and I had to fill a lot of time on the radio, there was a very regular occasion where I would ask a question and Chinch would 
answer a completely different one. That's so not true. So welcome to my world. No, that's world. not true. That Absolutely true. true. Seriously. Yeah. You know, that's world like a politician. But anyway, it's just really, so it's taken, I was wondering how long, and trying to you know, look back and say, what was the, what was the an interview that I did where I was really uncomfortable? That, you're probably right, the Joe Royal at Waterstones. I'm yeah, sure we did it, it at Waterstones yeah, yeah, it in Manchester. Out, think, we did yeah. it there. So it's taken me 15 years to get to a point where I feel I, I have the confidence and clearly the football world want to see me asking Jurgen Klopp questions, which he then doesn't answer. So are you now ready, Chinch, do you think, professionally as a broadcaster for a series of Chinch meets the great tactical mind? The Can Sky send you around the world now it, to speak to the most I, influential of coaches about their philosophy and their I, I feel the I shouldn't be sent around the world the tactical geniuses should come to me at uh, Chinch Fork I'd like to have a maybe a set built where we have a roaring fire two big leather armchairs and we, we and maybe brandies on side tables and, and make it a really board. and a, Possibly, t- I generally just want to get to the heart of the matter and get really into the individual's mind. So tactics boards can be confusing to the public. I want to bring out the real person. I want to bring out the real clippity-clop. That is, maybe, maybe that's what I've been put on this earth for. Programme executives, please get in touch. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Pitches are indeed welcome. Mm. Uh, do not forget to buy your ticket for Set Piece Menu Live. Our 100th episode is taking place on the 13th of November as part of the Manchester Podcast Festival. Head to their website to get your ticket, if only to prevent the monotony of my continuing to ask. In the meantime, please continue to send any soccer stories you may well have to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And also, if you had a, have a Reacher novel anywhere, gathering dust, in the garage, on a bookshelf, in the toilet using to prop a table up, open it, take a photo and send it to us so that Chinch can provide you with another appropriate bit of broadcasting. Uh, Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, Thank you to all of you for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. As I do quite often, I, I, I flew to Portugal. I don't tend to walk, it's quite a long way. I flew to Portugal and I was sat... For some reason, Nikki and I, I, I had to just, we just got aisle seats. So we we're opposite each other. I was in C, she was in D, but they're not next to each other. You know, you, there's an aisle in the middle uh, for the trolley dollies. Thanks and, for explaining. And I was sat next to a 65-year-old woman. She was pleasant enough, but, you know, she was from Yorkshire. Um, and she had a Reacher novel on the floor. And I thought, I've got to mention, I've got to say. I, so I, I said to her, you know, as we were taking are you a, a Reacher aficionado? And she said, no, not really. I don't like the books very much at all. So for the next two hours and 25 minutes, I turned my back on her. <laughs> During which time she was reading a Reacher novel, despite the fact that she finds it very distasteful. She said she was finding it very hard work and wanted to give up reading it. And I, I, just, I just wanted to rip it from her hands and throw it down the plane. Chin, I was you should really have, disappointed. You should have offered to read it to her. She'd have seen it in a totally new light. Ah, maybe that's the thing. Should I have a, yeah, should I do a bit of a reading and maybe keep it on my phone? And then when people like that say, I, I can't really get into these books, I don't really like all the headbutting. Listen to this. This will turn you Reacher's way. There is a very, very simple alternative to that, which takes out several middle stages, which mm. is to just take the book and read some of it to them. I could do that, but again, then I'm, I'm, I'm doing it to an audience and people will clearly want to hear more. And two and a half hours probably isn't enough time to completely finish what, is, what are truly incredible novels.